Welcome back to the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Emily Bjorkland. Today's episode focuses on the roots African and Native Americans have in Oklahoma and the push to preserve their history. One such person helping to make that happen is Dr. Bob Blackburn, who I had the pleasure of speaking with. Blackburn received his graduate degree in history from OSU and serves as the executive director for the Oklahoma Historical Society. Here now is our conversation about the history of Oklahoma's all-black towns and the work he's doing to preserve it. Uh, Yes, I'm Bob Blackburn. I'm executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. And I graduated from OSU with a PhD in 1979. And so I've been working closely with the faculty and students and lots of graduates since then. Uh, We call it the OSU mob in the history community. We kind of took over in the 70s and 80s. But uh, one of my real interests when I took over as editor of the Chronicles of Oklahoma in 1979 and then as executive director of the agency in 1989 is that we needed more diversity in our programs. We needed to collect more stories uh, beyond just old white guys uh, to women, to minorities, uh, to to other groups in Oklahoma history. So we needed to diversify. It really had not happened up to that point. And one of my emphasis was the African-American story in Oklahoma history. Uh, We had few collections. We'd never published many articles. It It didn't exist. It was the quiet, unspoken history good example would be the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. It was not in the history textbooks. It had never been mentioned at the Historical Society. So how do we correct it? So we put an emphasis on it. And so I started studying the African-American story in Oklahoma. So my own personal odyssey was my first big book in 1982. I had the story of African-Americans. It was a continuing thread of the story from beginning to end. Then I started doing more work uh, with other communities around the state in 1998, became chairman of the Tulsa Race Riot Commission to kind of look into what happened. We had $3 million of public money to use on this thing. So we had historians and forensic anthropologists. So collecting that story, and out of that came a greater appreciation for the all-black towns. So in 1999-2000, we did a research project. How do you define all-black towns? Is it defined by the percentage of population? Is it defined by a post office that it had black-owned businesses, that the political leaders were black? You know, how do you define it? So we got into that. We discovered the historical record was not very accurate. We have uncovered more than 50 all-black communities, is the word I like to use. Some would have a post office, some would have businesses, some a church or a school. Some would just be a gathering of families, lived in an area that had this social or clan structure dating back to tribal days. And so we knew how many we had. Then it became the issue for me of how do we preserve those all-black towns? How do we understand them better? How do we preserve them? So working through historic preservation funds, we've tried to restore some of those homes. We've put interpretive plaques in front of them. We found allies in each of those communities to promote a better understanding. So I've been studying all-black towns now for well over 30 years. My interest has been there over 40 years, going back to a course I had here at OSU with Dr. James Smallwood, history, or it was called Black History at the time. And uh, the book I used, From Slavery to Freedom, written by Dr. John Hope Franklin, an Oklahoman from Tulsa. And it was the, still is, three and a half million copies have been sold on that story. So uh, I was interested, been able to be in a position to do something about it, to study, to understand, and then I think 
as importantly, to share the story. So like you mentioned, you've served as the executive director for the Oklahoma Historical Society. And one of the big things that you've helped to do here in the state is build the Oklahoma History Center. So for you, what's it been like to see the impact of having that kind of center here in the uh, state? Well, the History Center is part of the transformation of the organization. By the 1970s, when I was using the collections, uh, Dr. Leroy Fisher, my main professor here on campus, would have me doing research. Well, I'd go to the Oklahoma Historical Society, you know, get on the microfilm machines and try to use the collections. Very few professionals. It was pretty much uh, acceptable. Mediocrity is the word that I use. So we had to make a decision in the 1980s and 90s. Was acceptable mediocrity still acceptable? No. We came up with a business plan that said, no, we have to have higher standards. We have federal documents. We have 4 million pages of the DAS Commission records that was used to allot all of the tribal lands from communal to private ownership. Uh, we're an affiliate of the National Archives. We wanted to be an affiliate of the Smithsonian. So if we were going to do those two things and set our goal at the highest level, higher standards, then we had to have greater efficiencies. So part of that is legislative authorization, part of it is a better staff, part of it is communication, clear goals, blueprint for what is success, what is failure, and then the last was partners. So higher standards, efficiencies, and partners. Then people will come to help where we can find a shared mission, such as with the History Department at OSU, or with the Greenwood Historical Society in Tulsa, or the, the Creek Freedmen of the Indian Territory finding these groups around the state who would share their resources with us. So that started unfolding in the early 1990s, and then it really peaked with the History Center. We started the planning in 1998 and opened it in 2005. 215,000 square feet. It's an affiliate of the Smithsonian. It's an affiliate of the National Archives, the only institution in the entire country that has both. And we've been able to raise about to one to one and a half million dollars a year to keep the exhibits fresh, to get the new collection. Last year, we brought in more than 400 distinct collections into the archives. And one collection might have 10,000 pieces. So 400 individual collections, so more than one a day we're getting in. So we're actively collecting. We have the room. We have the standards to convince you. So if I was after your collection on your family's story, whether it was a ranch or a town or whatever it might be, I want your parents to come see me they're going to look at the History Center and say, wow, this looks like the Smithsonian. Then that gives me the confidence to say, put your collections here. They'll be safe for all time. Young historians, journalists can come use the collections if it's here. And so it starts building. And then as the collections build, we can do more exhibits, better exhibits. We find new partners. We keep the staff strong despite 48% budget cuts in the last nine years. We've been able to keep our core staff intact, find other business uh, methods of keeping the train moving down the tracks. And now I'm working on a succession plan. When I retire, how do we get someone in to the executive director's office who will keep that momentum? How do we keep those division directors' positions strong and where they're feeling a sense of satisfaction where we will get the right replacements? And then how do we hire in young people today to start working up the career ladder? to be the leaders in 10, 20, 30 years. So uh, it's been very satisfying. The new museum in Tulsa that we're building, the Oklahoma Museum of Popular Culture, OK Pop for short, which will focus on the creative spirit of Oklahomans, whether it was in television, radio, the movies, writing, dance. 
All of this combined with the language of music. So yes, we'll have Garth Brooks, who went to campus, you know, here on the campus when he was a college student. And it'll include Patti Page, Leon Russell, the Flaming Lips. It will include Ernie Fields, an African-American big band leader, Bob Wills, going back to the roots of country music and jazz in Oklahoma. Uh, we, will, we have the collections. We're going to build that. That will be transformative in Tulsa. And then we're doing better with all of our museums and sites scattered around the state. We're still affiliated with about 30 institutions. Um, just last week I was in southeastern Oklahoma at Fort Towson where we have the original capital of the Choctaw Nation, an archaeological site. We have a museum dedicated to the story of the military in Indian removal. Well, Choctaws are stepping up as partners there. They want to be part of what we're doing. It's working. And so I, I, I feel a lot of satisfaction looking at the last 40 years and the progress we've been able to make. And for me personally, started right here on campus in Stillwater. So speaking of uh, you retiring, something that you've mentioned, a goal of yours is that by the time you retire, you want a living history farm here in Oklahoma. Why is it something that's so important for our state to have? Oh, good research. <laughs> uh, well, uh, two years ago, in the middle of the budget cuts, looking for partners, I'd been working with the Cherokee Nation. Bill John Baker, Principal Chief, Chuck Hoskins Senior, Chief of Staff, and on down the, the staff there. Well, we worked out a deal where we will, were able to transfer Sequoia home site to the Cherokee Nation. Uh, Sequoia developed the only original syllabary in the Western Hemisphere. Incas didn't do it. The Mayas didn't do it. Uh, none of those tribes did it. But one Cherokee, Sequoia, George Guess was his anglicized name, developed a syllabary. It's the only time it's happened in the Western Hemisphere. Well, he had his cabin in eastern Oklahoma in the 1930s. Leadership at the society said, we've got to save that. They got a PWA grant, covered it, built a rock wall around it. We've operated it ever since. I determined that we've been taking land away from tribal people for 200 years in Oklahoma history. It's time to give up some of it back. They need a land base. They've got free enterprise now with their business model. They have constitutional government. They have bureaucracy. They have everything except the land base. Well, they're not going to get what they once had, but we can take the most important parts of that land base, like Sequoia Home Site, Fort Washita, cemeteries where their ancestors are buried. Say, so let's give those back to the tribes. As I said at that press conference, it's the right thing to do, even though it's one of our best, most loved sites. Well, out of that conversation, as I said, whatever money we get from Sequoia Home Site, we will invest in the Cherokee Nation. Let's keep Cherokee money in Cherokee country. So I agreed to invest it at what was then called um, the Morrell Home. We now call it Hunter's Home. We renamed it, trying to rebrand it. Uh, it was a plantation established in the 1840s, 1840s before the Civil War. House was built. It's the oldest house surviving in Oklahoma. Most of the houses like that would have been burned during the Civil War. It survived. We've had it in state ownership since the 50s and our ownership since 1990. But we kept trying to develop it. But we need to emphasize a community that would have surrounded it. The house alone is not enough. House museums don't work anymore. A little bit of Cherokee history with the Morrell family, the Ross family, it's okay. But how is that relevant? We wanted to expand it with more of a living history experience, an immersion experience. So for you young people who are bored to tears with house museums, maybe we can get you to step back in time. Well, if we're really going to do that at a plantation that had African-American slaves, 
we need to go back and have the same crops, the same animals. So we're using the money we got from the Cherokee Nation for the Sequoia Solution to expand the Living History Farm to 1850s. We know from the records what kind of hogs he had, what kind of cows, what kind of crops. We know where the orchards were located. We know how he plowed it. We, were, we will get that livestock. We can get the heirloom crops. I'll be reaching out to OSU Extension to help us with those heirloom crops. We will plant with an oxen yoke. We will, we will go out and let kids harvest the beets and, and can them. We will let people see how you butchered a hog in the 1850s. So we feel like it's important to share those stories, not just through books and exhibits and a kind of a, a detached museum, but immersion experience. Step back in time. Let's give people the experience as well as the lesson. Alrighty, and to kind of close this out, taking it back to uh, the historic all black towns in Oklahoma, uh, one of the big things with history is to study it so that it doesn't repeat, but you still do see the lingering effects of it. What is something that you think in Oklahoma that we're still seeing the effects of these historic all black towns in 2019 Oklahoma today? Well, I think one thing that we can see clearly from the story of the all black towns is that given a chance, anyone can achieve the same thing as any other human being. Just because the pigment of your skin, which at one time was used to separate the entire community. Jim Crow laws were embedded in our first state legislature in 1907. It was embedded in tribal culture to a degree. And so Oklahoma was born during a period of overt racism. Nothing subtle about it as it is today. We still have racism today, but it's much more subtle. An African-American or someone from the Middle East can still come into these buildings. They can have dinner next to us tonight. Would not happen when the all-black towns were at their peak. Well, what we can show, though, by taking some of the individuals from that experience and the lessons learned, that once they have the safety, self-determination, self-governance, uh, self-determination with, with the business community, the church community, anything was possible. Well, that lesson is still here today. We still have elected officials trying to divide us just to get the votes by wanting to build a wall. Let's separate us because of a different ethnic, religious background. Let's ban an entire religion in the world and lump them all into the group of terrorists. Well, that's ignorance. That's not knowing our history. That's being victim to politicians who want to use our votes to gain power. We've got to push back and say, no, Oklahoma is a land of immigrants coming from all over. And when given a chance, those immigrants would work hard. They would invest in their community and the children and the grandchildren would take that foundation and do great things like a John Hope Franklin, whose great-grandfather was a Chickasaw slave. One of the stories I'll tell today in the lecture is that his son, David, who was born a free man but got an allotment and considered a freedman, and the ranch he put together gave his son, B.C. Franklin, a chance to be an attorney in Tulsa in 1921 to protect those victims of the race right. And his son, John Hope Franklin, the first African-American Ph.D. with a history degree from Harvard, head of the department, history department at University of Chicago and at Duke, wrote the book, Presidential Freedom of Honor from President Clinton. Great things can happen 
if you give people a chance and we don't hold them back, we don't build a wall between us and them and say we're all welcome, we're all part of our community and admit that we're stronger together than we are divided. So in terms of a civics lesson, we've got to push back on those who use fear, hatred, and division to get what they want, which is usually power, and to say, no, we're not going to fall for that. Let's look for the candidates and for the leaders who will say, no, we're all welcome and we all need to go forward together. Thank you again to Bob Blackburn for sitting and talking with me. The Oklahoma History Museum, where much of Blackburn's collection resides, is open six days a week in Oklahoma City. And that will do it for this episode of the Inside OSU podcast. I'm Emily Bjorklund, and we look forward to having you here again next week. Mm-hmm.